So we're looking at the eight verses I just read, Exodus 6, 1 to 8. And this passage contains an obvious difficulty, at least in our English translations. Because in verse 3, God says, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. The obvious difficulty is that God had made Himself known to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by the name, the Lord. Or we know that's a transliteration of the name Yahweh or Jehovah, all of which are just variations of the same name. To cite just one example, in Genesis 15 and verse 7, God says to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans. So what are we to make of this? Well, unless we're prepared to say that Moses has forgotten what he wrote in Genesis, or unless we're prepared to say that some supposed editor or compiler has put together ancient myths from various sources in a haphazard fashion and tried to pass them off as a unified narrative, neither of which we are prepared to do because of our doctrine of Scripture, then there obviously has to be some other explanation. And the easiest, um, most likely explanation is that this is just a issue of translation. Douglas Stewart, in his commentary, posits that the sense of this statement should be a rhetorical question, something like this. I appeared as God Almighty, and did I not make myself known also by my name, the Lord? Alec Motier argues that the sense of it should be I revealed my name, the Lord, but I did not let you know its significance. So something, something like this is happening most likely in the Hebrew, but we're far enough removed from ancient Hebrew that we're having a hard time getting at it. That happens. Whatever the precise intended meaning of God's statement in verse 3, it's clear that God expects what follows to be a disclosure of himself to Moses and by extension, a disclosure of himself to the people of Israel. This is implied when God says, By my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. The implication is, by my name, the Lord, I am now going to make myself known to you. So the theme of Exodus 6, 1-8 to is who Yahweh is and what Yahweh will do. And if I could sum up the definition this passage gives us of who Yahweh is, who the Lord is, and what He will do, I would say it like this. The Lord is a promise keeper. Yahweh is a promise keeper. Let's look back at Genesis chapter 15, which I alluded to a moment ago, and see what is promised. God says to Abraham, beginning at verse 7, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So this is 
very foreign to us, but this is a way of entering into a very solemn agreement or covenant with another person. You cut the animals in half, and the parties would walk through the middle, and the symbolism was, you know, may God do so to me if I break this promise that I'm making to you. Like, in other words, may God cut me in half, so to speak, if I break this. It's a very solemn agreement. This is what's happening here. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they, shall not, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. So if we could sum up a couple of things that were promised. One is rescue. Look at verse 14. After, their, after Abram's offspring are sojourners in a land that is not theirs and are afflicted for 400 years, God says in verse 14, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And another thing that is obvious from that text is land. In verse 18, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. Now, flip back to Exodus chapter 6 and note the correspondence. We can divide up most of what's here in Exodus 6 into two categories. Rescue and land. In verse 6, God says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Rescue. And then land, verse 8. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. These are actually almost identical passages. Those things which are promised to Abram back in Genesis 15 are reiterated to Moses here in Exodus chapter 6. There's only one thing mentioned in Exodus 6, 1 to 8, that is not explicitly mentioned in Genesis 15, but that's found in Genesis 17. God promised to be the God of Abraham's descendants and to take them for his own. Genesis 17 and verse 7. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Now again, back to Exodus chapter 6, specifically verse 7. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. You see that everything that's here, 
in Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, has already been promised a long time ago to Abraham. Almost, almost verbatim, like the correspondence is unmistakable. God is not introducing new information. God is not making new promises. God is bringing to Moses' attention the same promises that he had made to Abraham so long ago. And he's reiterating that he's still going to do those things. And the implication as he is revealing himself to Moses here as Yahweh in a way unprecedented is this is what it means to be Yahweh. To them, I did not make myself known as Yahweh, right? But implicitly, to you I am, right? If we take Motir's sense of it, if, if we take Doug Stewart's sense of it, which is, and did I not also reveal myself to them as Yahweh? Then what God would be doing here is saying, hey, listen, don't forget, I am Yahweh. Which means I'm going to do everything I said. So in any case, however you understand that difficulty of the English translation here, whatever way we work around that, the sense of this is that God is making the point that being Yahweh means keeping promises. This is what's happening here. Hey, Moses, I am Yahweh. I am going to rescue you. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to own you to be my people, and I'm going to be your God, just like I promised Abram in Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. God is a promise keeper. He does what He says. God does what He says for them. Obviously, we're going to keep working our way through Exodus. How do you think it ends? God leaves them in slavery in Egypt? God makes all these promises, but as it turns out, He's just blowing smoke. And really, he's not going to do anything. How do you think that this narrative unfolds? That God makes these promises to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph goes ahead of the people by God's sovereign working to preserve them through the midst of the years of famine. And Joseph brings his father and all his brothers to live with him in Egypt and they become enslaved. And then God drops them. How do you think it ends? God keeps His promises. God does what He has said He is going to do. And what we see throughout the Old Testament is that God never drops His end of the deal. God never defaults on His end of the bargain. There are some things which are bilateral, which means that there are conditions attached. Sometimes God says, if you do this, I will do this. And when his people don't do that, then sometimes God doesn't do what he said he would have done if they had. But when God makes unilateral promises, God keeps them. Over and over through the Old Testament, God does things that he had promised unconditionally that he would do for his people. And regardless of how His people act, regardless of what His people do, God follows through on the unilateral promises that He made. Back in Genesis chapter 15, you may or may not have noticed, 
But it says that when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. So who walked between the pieces? The Lord and Abram? No. Two symbols of the Lord's presence walked through the pieces. So it was like the Lord and the Lord walked between the pieces. And so as I said, the significance is that the Lord here is promising to Abram, look, if I don't do what I tell you I'm going to do, may you cut me in half, essentially. This is what God was doing in Genesis chapter 15. Your descendants are going to be afflicted for 400 years, but I will rescue them. I will give you this land. And I, and I, am going to walk through in the midst of the pieces. Not you and I, I and I am going to walk through in the midst of the pieces. Me and me, not me and you. Two symbols of the Lord passed between the pieces. This was a unilateral promise. And in Exodus, God keeps His unilateral promise. And He's reiterating to Moses here in Exodus chapter 6, these same promises. And He's implying, this is what it means to be Yahweh. God does for them what He has said He was going to do. Look at... Exodus chapter 6 again. I don't know if you noticed, but on this point of unilateral promise keeping, do you realize there are seven I wills in this passage? I don't know if you caught that as we were reading through. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. And this I am the Lord at the end of verse 8 is like a bookend with the I am the Lord in verse 2 on the other end. And between is just God's reiteration of these promises. I am Yahweh. Here's all the promises that I made. I am Yahweh. You see that? I will. I will. I will. I will. I will. I will. I don't know if I just said that seven times or not, but you get the point. I will do it. Not let's work together on this. Let's collaborate on this. Have you done your part? This is not the language of this passage. The language is, I will do this because I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh. Let me reiterate all the promises I made. I'm going to keep them. I am Yahweh. God keeps His promises. He is a promise keeper. He does for the people of Israel what He says. He does it for us too. We are in a different covenant, or at least the covenant is fulfilled differently to us than to Abraham's biological seed here 
in slavery in Egypt in Exodus chapter 6. They were put in a covenant at Sinai, which we call the Old Covenant, in keeping with the language of Scripture, that had certain promises and conditions and benefits attached to it, and so on and so forth. And God kept His unilateral promises to Abraham's biological seed unilaterally. And God kept His end of the deal in terms of the bilateral commitments He had made to those people. We are under a different covenant, the new covenant. But God is the same God. He who brought Israel out of Egypt and entered into covenant with them at Sinai has entered into covenant with us at another mountain, Calvary. And in this new covenant, in Christ's blood, God has made promises to us and what it means to be Yahweh is that he will keep those promises there are things that are bilateral promises in the new covenant for example in the book of James it says draw near to God and he will draw near to you our communion with God is not something that God promises unilaterally that we will enjoy day in and day out. There are conditions attached to our communion with God. Not our union with Christ, but our communion with Christ. In other words, you don't get more saved or less saved based on whether you read your Bible and pray, for example. But you enjoy this relationship that you're in with God through Christ, more or less, based on whether you read or pray. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Just an example of a bilateral thing. But there are unilateral promises that God has made to us in Christ. We've been looking at the Gospel of John on Sunday mornings for a good while now. In John chapter 6 and verse 40, we read this. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. He just promises. He will raise up His people on the last day. Well, what if I don't read my Bible and pray? He will raise you up on the last day. Well, what if I struggle and limp along in the Christian life? He will raise you up on the last day. Well, what about if I, if I sin really grievously? He will raise you up on the last day. Well, what about if I don't have sound doctrine? He will raise you up on the last day. You get it. There are things that God has promised to us unilaterally that He will do. We can go to the bank on everything that God has promised whether bilateral or unilateral. Everything that God has promised, which has a condition attached to it, if you do this, then I will do this. We can be sure that He will never fail on His end of the deal. And everything that is unilateral, that God has said, I will do this, period. Everything to which God has committed Himself 
apart from any conditions met on our end, we can be sure that God will do no matter what. It's as if God and God have walked through the pieces of the animals cut in half and laid by either side of the path. In Zephaniah chapter 3, God is said to do many things, again, unilaterally. We remember the seven I wills from Exodus chapter 6. Just listen to this from Zephaniah chapter 3, which is referring to the end of all things. The culmination of the Messiah's work. Beginning at Zephaniah chapter 3 and verse 9. God says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. Again, this morning we were talking about the ingathering of the Gentiles. Right? The, the outflow of water from the hearts of God's people, from the temple in Ezekiel. Right? Here we see it again. The gathering in of the peoples, the nations. And God says, I will, in verse 9. On that day you shall not be put to shame, verse 11, because of the deeds with which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Verse 12, But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. What conditions have to be met? In order for God to purify His people. In order that they would be able to graze and none will make them afraid. Nothing. This is unilateral. I will. I will. I will. Sing aloud then. Verse 14. O daughter of Zion. Shout O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart. O daughter of Jerusalem. And he moves to third person now. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, if they meet certain conditions. No, on that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord, Yahweh, your God, is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. Now listen. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. And then it goes to first person. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in at the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. 
That's unilateral. That is the end of all things. God is going to bring all of that to pass. And we are going to have a share in it because we are the peoples, in verse 9, whose speech God will change to a pure speech. We are among those Gentiles as believers in Christ who have come to share in the eschatological blessings of the restoration of the children of Israel. God here is making a promise to the people of Jerusalem, to the Israelites, but Gentiles come to share in it. And we know from the New Testament that this happens according to Ephesians chapter 2 by making the Jews and Gentiles one together in one body in Christ Jesus. What God has in store in terms of restoring the people of Israel and the prophecies of the Old Testament, the Gentiles come to share in. We are grafted into that olive tree according to Romans chapter 9. All of this is the end of the work of the Messiah. This is the goal at which history is driving. This is all going to be fulfilled unilaterally without respect to conditions that we meet or fail to meet. This is what God will do. And the Exodus is a picture of how God unilaterally fulfills His promise, getting His people out of a bad spot and making things right with them and for them. And so we're not under the same covenant, we're not in the same circumstances as the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 6. But we serve the same God, and that God put the story of the Exodus in the Bible for our sake. So that we would understand that when we are in Exodus chapter 5 in our lives, redemption is coming. And Exodus 14 is just around the corner when God parts the sea and leads us through and gets us to the other side and we are out. The same Yahweh who in Exodus chapter 6 communicates to Moses that keeping promises is fundamental to what it means to be Yahweh. That same Yahweh is our God. And that same Yahweh has made promises to us. Bilateral ones, yes, some of them, but many unilateral promises. God has simply said, I will do it. The last chapter of the story of the world has not been written yet. In the microcosm that is your life, you might be in Exodus chapter 5, and Exodus 14 is on its way for you. But even in the macrocosm, there's a sense in which we're in Exodus chapter 5 right now. Because, yeah, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ has ascended, and we've begun to enjoy some of the blessings, some of the benefits of His work and of God's redemptive plan. 
by, by grace, through faith in Christ Jesus, God's, Christ's righteousness has been given to us, that we're clothed in His righteousness and made acceptable to God. Our sins have been placed upon Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God, and He has taken away the sin of the world. And so we are already reconciled to God. And in that sense, we're out of Egypt. But in another sense, we're still in Egypt. This is the already but not yet that permeates the New Testament. You're sort of saved and sort of not saved. You're completely saved if you're talking about justification. But if you're talking about the full escape from all of sin's effects upon your life and upon the world, well, you're not quite totally saved yet. Already and not yet. But Exodus 14 is coming. And Christ Jesus, who lived and who died and who rose for us and for our salvation, will return for us and the culmination, the fulfillment, the completion of our salvation. When what He has promised in Zephaniah 3 happens and He purifies the abode, the habitation of His people by removing from them the wicked. And He comes to be with us so we can say the Mighty One, the Lord, the King of Israel is in our midst. And the lame can walk and the outcasts are gathered in and all of the other things that Zephaniah has promised. And we're on the other side of the Red Sea. No longer dreading Pharaoh and his army because they're at the bottom. Exodus 14 is coming for us also. Because Yahweh is a promise keeper. I am the Lord, he says. Here's all the promises I made and I'm still going to keep them. I am the Lord. The Lord is a promise keeper.